You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 70, Recognizing and Preventing Eating Disorders with Chelsea Buffum. Hey, I'm your host, Dr. Yami. I'm a board-certified pediatrician, certified health and wellness coach, author, and speaker. I'm also a passionate promoter of the power of diet and lifestyle in preventing and reversing chronic disease and bringing joy and longevity into our lives. This podcast is focused on plant-based nutrition, habit formation, motivation, and mindset so that you can have the tools to live the best life possible. Are you ready to get started? Let's do this. Eating disorders and anorexia specifically um, are the most deadly mental illnesses. And so we need to really remember that because um, folks may be struggling, um, but may not really look like it on the outside too. And they may be struggling with very significant disordered eating symptoms. And we really need to catch this early so that we can help our kiddos um, thrive in the future. Hello, hello, veggie lovers. Welcome to the last episode of Veggie Doctor Radio for the Intuitive Eating Series. So don't worry, I'll be back next week talking about nutrition and healthy behaviors and habits, but this is the last episode in the Intuitive Eating Series, and I think that you're really going to like this episode. So in this episode, I speak with Chelsea Buffum. She has been on the podcast before, and she is a licensed mental health counselor who specializes in treating eating disorders. I wanted to finish out the series talking about eating disorders because we've talked about a lot of things. We've talked about picky eating. We've talked about health at every size, but there really are some instances where a child or teen may have an eating disorder. And so I want you to be aware of that. Before I tell you more about Chelsea and what we talk about, I wanted to remind you that my book is finally at the printer and it is coming out November the 19th. November the 19th, 2019. So very, very soon, I'm so excited. I cannot wait to get it in my hands. If you haven't already pre-ordered, you have time. So go to my website, dryami.com, D-O-C-T-O-R-Y-A-M-I.com, and you can find the links there to pre-order my book on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. If you aren't already on my weekly newsletter where I send you the podcast episodes and any other news that I have, then sign up at dryami.com forward slash sign up, or you can text the word fiber, F-I-B-E-R, to 66866 to get on my mailing list. Remember that my book is called A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy. And I hope that you love it. I can't wait for you to read it. Okay, so who is Chelsea? Chelsea Buffum, MS, 
LMHC, is a licensed mental health counselor who specializes in treating eating disorders. She owns an outpatient practice right here in Yakima, Washington, and is passionate about how stigma, discrimination, and social determinants of health impact our relationship to food and our bodies. She uses a health at every size lens when working with clients as disconnection and dissatisfaction with our bodies is often driven driven by an intense and culturally sanctioned desire to lose weight. She believes that body shame is rarely a good and long-term motivator to engage in healthy behaviors. Chelsea graduated from Whitworth University with a bachelor's degree in sociology and from Central Washington University with her master in mental health counseling. Her research has focused on attitudes and stigma toward those who are in larger bodies and or have binge eating disorder. Prior to opening her practice, Chelsea worked as a clinician at CWU's Student Medical and Counseling Clinic and developed CWU's first eating disorder treatment protocol. She has experience in residential treatment facilities as well as rehabilitative homes. You can learn more at ChelseaBuffumTherapy.com and that's C-H-E-L-S-E-A-B-U-F-F-U-M-T-H-E-R-A-P-Y.com, ChelseaBuffumTherapy.com. Okay, so Chelsea has been on the podcast before, and I can link the prior episode where we talked more about health at every size and body dissatisfaction and those kinds of things. But I asked her specifically to come back this time to talk about eating disorders. So I wanted to talk about what we should look out for as parents and as family members, as friends, what are the signs and symptoms of eating disorders in children? And what are some myths and stereotypes about eating disorders? So you're gonna learn about that and also gonna learn about what causes eating disorders, how we diagnose them and what treatment might look like. And we're also gonna end out with what Chelsea wishes more parents knew. So this is a great episode. I hope that you love it. And I hope that you really enjoyed the intuitive eating series. Please, if you're enjoying listening to my podcast, I ask that you please subscribe to my podcast, rate and review it and share it with somebody who you think would benefit from hearing these episodes. I really appreciate you being here, listening to me and my guests week after week after week. I am so grateful for you, and I'm so grateful that I get to do this. It's super fun. All right, enough about me. Let's get on with the interview. Happy Sunday, veggie lovers. So I am so excited. I'm actually in the same room as my friend and colleague, Chelsea Buffum, who is back with me again. I asked her to come back to talk specifically about eating disorders. I thought that this would be really important given that we're talking about intuitive eating and health at every size. And we've talked about respecting size differences in children. And most recently, we've been talking about picky eating and extreme picky eating. But now we're moving beyond that and we're gonna be talking about eating disorders because there is such a thing as eating disorders and Chelsea is an expert. So I asked her to come back and talk to me more about this so that we can help you, my listeners and parents, 
understand when your child may be exhibiting symptoms of an eating disorder and what to do about it. So Chelsea, thank you so much for being with me today. Thanks so much for having me as always. All right, so let's launch in. I wanna get, get down to the nitty gritty yeah. and get to work here. So let's talk about first, what is the difference between an eating disorder and disordered eating? That's a great question. Um, really with an eating disorder, what we're talking about is meeting criteria in the DSM-5. So um, we've got bit, the big three, as I like to call them, anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder, and then we have another category called other specified feeding and eating disorder. And so when, a fo when folks meet criteria for an eating disorder, they meet very specific criteria, and um, it could be a number of those symptoms. Disordered eating means that someone may meet some of the criteria and maybe not all of the criteria, and it's often called subclinical disordered eating or subclinical eating disorders. I have a bit of a problem, right, with that terminology because sometimes people think, oh, well, it's not that bad if it's subclinical or if we don't meet criteria for an eating disorder. Um, and so I really like to look for symptoms and how it is really impacting functioning for right, my teens or my children. Um, so someone may be struggling with disordered eating, may not meet a full diagnosis, and they go right under, um, we, don't, we don't catch them. And so it's important that we look for kind of all of the symptoms. And just to clarify, the DSM-5 is a manual that therapists and physicians, psychiatrists use to diagnose mental health disorders. So eating disorders technically are classified under mental health disorders. And I think what Chelsea's trying to say is that yes, there are some children, some teenagers that might meet very specific criteria but even those that don't check all the boxes, they may still have significant problems. So talk to me about why, why is it important? Why should we even care about eating disorders or disordered eating? What, what bad things are happening to our kids and our teens? Um, eating disorders and anorexia specifically um, are the most deadly mental illnesses. And so we need to really remember that because um, folks may be struggling, um, but may not really look like it on the outside too. And they may be struggling with very significant disordered eating symptoms. And we really need to catch this early so that we can help our kiddos um, thrive in the future. And the earlier we catch it, the better we have for chances for recovery, um, the better we can do in treatment. Um, it's much easier to do that way. So caring early and watching early is really important. Yeah, and just to piggyback on that, as far as the medical effects of having an eating disorder or some of the symptoms of an eating disorder, it can affect all the organ, all the organ systems. But in addition, as far as it being the deadliest, there is a very high suicide rate associated with especially anorexia nervosa. But the condition itself has a high mortality rate because if you stop eating long enough, you will have organ shutdown. It can affect even the muscles of your heart, like your heart muscles actually start getting weaker. So it, it's really important. I think what's really difficult about these eating disorders is that we live in a society 
where thinness is so valued that people can be literally wasting away and still be getting compliments. A couple of podcasts back, I talked to Harriet Brown, who's, oh my God, I just fell in love with her. She's just awesome. She said that the day that they went in with her daughter to get her admitted, the technician putting the EKG stuff on her gave her daughter a compliment about how thin she was. And she was getting admitted for an eating disorder. So that's really hard because they're they're literally having these medical problems, especially with things like bulimia too and the recurrent vomiting. You can have dental erosions, you can have esophagitis, gastritis, all kinds of things, but then you're getting complimented on weight loss or having discipline in order to not eat and lose weight. So let's launch in with the signs and symptoms of an eating disorder. What do parents, family members, what do they need to be looking out for in their children and their teenagers to try to identify and detect an eating disorder? This can look a little bit different than with adults. So this is a great question too, especially with kids and teens. Um, The first and foremost, okay, we talk about weight loss, but especially for children, a lack of weight gain. Children are really supposed to be gaining weight through puberty and sometimes they can fall off their growth chart. And so sometimes parents think, oh, you know, there's no problem because they haven't lost any weight. But if your kiddo hasn't gained weight in a while, that could be a concern. The second one is eating less or eating a narrow range of foods. Um, Sometimes they cut out a couple of things and it looks really subtle and they kind of say, oh, it's for vague reasons like health or things like that. When previously your kid may have enjoyed certain types of foods and those are the things they're cutting out. Um, Increased interest in cooking or watching cooking shows. This is one that people don't really know about, but sometimes your teenager will start watching a ton of cupcake wars or something like that. Um, And it's a way to kind of be near, right, the food and feed the obsession about food without actually eating. Um, Evidence of vomiting or laxative use, um, going to the bathroom right after meals, taking long showers after meals. um, And two, most kids and teens don't know so much about Um, like laxatives and things like that, but they will find out about slimming teas or things of that nature. And so watching out for behaviors like that is really important. Um, This is a really great one, excessive exercise, um, hyperactivity and restlessness. Sometimes parents miss miss this or they think, oh, is ADHD happening? Mm -hmm. But if it's a sudden kind of hyperactivity, can't sit down, even times like when the family's watching TV and they're really struggling to sit down, you notice that they are standing a lot um, and can't sit down, they're moving their legs a lot. That's something to watch for as well. Um, And then I like to note like changes in clothing, right? Um, Hiding in really baggy clothing, Um, body image disturbances. So you might notice that they are body checking a lot more. And by body checking, I mean, like looking in the mirror, pinching and poking um, when they haven't done that before. Um, It's kind of a, it can be a bit of a compulsive behavior as well to do the body checking. Um, And then of course, loss of period, right? Especially for um, folks with uteruses. So um, that's a really big one. But I think um, parents and doctors often wait till that happens to Mm -hmm. diagnose. And um, that's 
concerning because mm-hmm. we should be diagnosing or looking much sooner than the loss of period happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that loss of a period is actually a late symptom. So that's when your body's basically like, okay, I have no reserves left to have a period, not enough body fat. Um, And now we're starting to recognize that not everybody that has anorexia is going to lose their period, and we shouldn't probably be waiting until they lose their period to officially diagnose some people with anorexia. Yeah, I think that those are really great symptoms to watch out for. And I particularly, you know, that watching the TV shows and stuff. I guess I've never really thought of that, but that makes sense because when you start restricting, you start obsessing about food. It's like the perfect way to start obsessing about food. If you can't eat it, you're going to be thinking about it and thinking about how not to eat it. Or even um, other thing I've heard is cooking for other people, like suddenly baking a lot, but not eating it, just making for other people so feeling like you want to be close to the food even though you can't have the food in you in your stomach you want to give it to other people how about words and language do kids and teens that develop eating disorders how do they start talking differently is there things that they start saying about themselves is that something to look out for This is kind of tricky because a lot of teens won't say much about it at all. Mm. And um, it's really, it can be really secretive. Mm -hmm. So parents may expect their teen to say, oh, I don't feel good in my body or, oh, I'm really trying to lose weight. And unfortunately, most teens and children do not say anything like that. Mm. Um, They may say, I don't feel comfortable or a lot of teens and children would talk about like, um, my stomach doesn't feel good. So that's why I don't feel like eating that. You may notice that they uh, withdraw a lot more, social isolation. Um, You may notice that they're really irritable and cranky and have a lot of outbursts more than usual. And that's hard to parse out because a lot of teens, right, have outbursts anyway, or they're being teenagers. But um, more irritability Mm -hmm. um, is definitely a concern. So that's tricky. Um, You may have your teen compare a little bit more or say, oh, you know, that person looks like this and I don't look like that, or these pants don't look good on me, or those types of body image comments. Um, but rarely are they going to be saying, mom, dad, I have an eating disorder. Yeah. Yeah. That's super interesting. I think because partially they are trying to hide the fact that they're doing what they're doing. So do they start avoiding meals? Do they start avoiding going out with their family? Is that one of the things that might stand out? Right, yeah, and things they may have enjoyed before. So um, they may have enjoyed a certain type of sport or a certain activity, but now they're skipping it to go to the gym, or they are worried about going to that um, friend's function because there's going to be food there. Mm-hmm. And again, they may not, they're not gonna say anything like that typically. I don't wanna go because there's food there, but they may make up some other excuses, right? Like, oh, I don't wanna go because I don't feel good. Those are all super important points. Um, so how common are eating disorders? And I know that there's going to be this gray area in between, between the disordered eating habits, dieting habits, and a full blown diagnosable eating disorder. But how often are we going to be seeing these things? And I regrettably didn't look up the most recent statistics. So you might have them. Um, I believe back in, um, the early 2000s, maybe the late 90s, it was, you know, one in 10 girls are struggling with an eating disorder. 
Um, and then one in 20 boys. I think certainly the boy gap is definitely decreasing. So um, we're definitely seeing a lot more boys struggling. Um, and again, like you said, right, full-blown eating disorder, that's a diagnosable eating disorder versus folks who may be struggling with quote-unquote um, subclinical symptoms that we're not catching by that number. And I'm glad you brought up boys because there are some differences between how boys and girls present. How can boys present a little differently than girls do when it comes to eating disorders? We often find a focus on muscularity, uh, muscle dysmorphia, and muscle dysmorphia is really seeing your muscles um, differently than other people might see them or a hyper focus on muscles. Um, and I think with boys, we're not catching that so often. So actually the folks that I'm seeing in my office are typically my cross country runners, um, you know, boys who are in sports that um, require a really low weight. It's harder to spot the boys who are kind of in the gym or wanting to pump up. Um, and we don't talk about it as much, but that's typically more common with boys. Yeah, they certainly can present the same as girls, but there also is this higher percentage of boys that are trying to get bigger, but they're also doing maybe extreme practices in order to do that or to cut fat. You know, they're, they're having these extreme practices. All right, so I wanna, and I think we've touched upon this a little bit, but I wanna talk about some myths and stereotypes about eating disorders that you'd like to break. Okay, the first one, I love this question. The first one, of course, is that eating disorders look a certain way. I can't tell you how many times I've heard um, parents say, well, they don't look that ill, right? How can they be ill? And in all honesty, we cannot tell who has an eating disorder by looking them at them at all. We can't know by BMI, we can't know by body weight, we can't know by any of that. Um, we really know by behaviors, and that's what we're really looking for. So, um, and I think that's really important too, because a lot of teens will say, well, I don't look like the images of anorexia. And of course, online, you're gonna see the scariest images of anorexia that really doesn't capture the majority of folks who are struggling with disordered eating. And the second big myth is that, um, and this has been perpetuated since the 80s, that parents cause eating disorders. That's absolutely not true. Parents, um, and I talk about this in the first session, are the biggest asset in treatment and recovery. We need parents to be a part of it. And um, they're the biggest strength. So when we're talking about what causes eating disorders, it's really genetic, it's biopsychosocial, so it's your environment, right? But that doesn't mean that the family culture is causing an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. We live in diet culture, right? That's a huge contributor, but that doesn't mean family is the cause. Um, those are the big ones I really wanted to mention. Yeah, that first one I think is so important to realize. But I think also whenever, especially a parent is living with a child for a long time, they may not realize how they, the way they look, how it's changed over time because they've been with them so long. Um, but also going back to what I said before, we value thinness so much that when we see people get thinner and it kind of matches what we see on social media, we're like, well, it doesn't seem so bad. But the problem, like you said, isn't necessarily in the body per se, but in the mind where they're really struggling. They're really having these intense 
thoughts and urges to restrict or to binge or to purge and it's an obsessive thing that really just dominates life and takes the joy out of life but can also become very very dangerous so yeah, you, you can't just look at somebody and say whether they have an eating disorder or not. And there's so many people walking around. There's even people that technically, according to BMI, might be overweight and have a really severe eating disorder that might be dismissed by a medical professional because they may not meet some of these more BMI classifications. So for parents and listeners out there, I think it's just really important to... Um, to pay attention to what Chelsea is saying that it doesn't look the way we always think it's going to look and so to start breaking that stereotype of gaunt you know girl that you can see the ribs that is the only way that an eating disorder presents is not true okay and I'm glad that you brought up that parents do not cause eating disorders because that was one of my questions so no they do not but I wanted to take a little side road here and just talk briefly about orthorexia nervosa so I know that orthorexia is not technically a diagnosable disorder under the DSM-5 but I'm sure you see it a lot and I know that it's coming up a lot more frequently in this day and age where we are really focused on healthy eating and quote clean eating and all of this stuff. So can you talk a little bit more about orthorexia nervosa? Sure, like you said, I am seeing a lot more of it and it is an obsession with healthy eating, whatever that looks like um, for the client because some people have very different different definitions of what healthy eating is. Mm-hmm. Um, when it becomes a problem is when uh, functioning is impacted. So when um, they don't want to, when my kiddos don't want to attend certain functions because there's not going to be healthy food there, or um, they appear so anxious because there's no healthy food to eat, or they won't eat certain types of food that are that they would normally eat um, because they're so concerned about the health piece. And it can dovetail with anorexia um, in that folks can lose um, weight and be in a really medically compromised place or not. And there can be a body image component or not. Um, But really the focus is on healthy eating as opposed to restricting, restricting, restricting how many calories are eaten. Yeah, and I think that's the important point is that to have these symptoms of orthorexia, it doesn't have to do necessarily with weight or body size, it has to do with an obsession with eating healthy, you know, like avoiding chemicals or avoiding non-organic things or increasing your or whatever. Basically like take Dr. Yami and amplify it to a million and make it really restrictive that way. But um, so it can seem like maybe it's healthy until the time, until you get to the point where you're not going out, you're not hanging out with friends, you're obsessed checking menus online before you can go to a restaurant and really getting very worried and anxious that you're not gonna have anything to eat. Um, So it really is about how much is it interfering with normal functioning. All of these disordered eating and eating disorders, they, they start to interfere with life, they start to socially interfere, but also may cause physical and medical problems as well. Okay, so if we know that parents are not causing eating disorders, what do we know can trigger eating disorders? And is there anything that we can do as parents, as families, as medical professionals to try to prevent them from occurring? 
Eating disorders are really complex, so there are a lot of things that can cause or contribute or trigger them. But I will say we do know one of the biggest factors in triggering an eating disorder is dieting or going on a restrictive food plan. Um, I often say if you don't want an eating disorder, don't start a New Year's resolution right, about dieting. Mm. Um, and so parents can really be on the lookout for that. If your kiddos are wanting to go on a diet or a restrictive food plan, really having a conversation about that. What does that mean? What are the goals in that? What are the values in that? Because it can be a slippery slope from there. Now, of course, that's not to say that everyone who goes on a diet is gonna develop an eating disorder. We know this. And um, the old saying really is, um, genetics loads the gun, environment pulls the trigger for eating disorders. So we know that there's a huge genetic component. Um, some personality factors, right? Perfectionism, um, OCD-like tendencies are very um, correlated with eating disorders. Those are genetic components that can um, come down the line. And then environment, right? Being an environment that is very weight-centric, um, we live in the diet culture that often triggers eating disorders. So there's a lot of different factors that can occur. But my big one is, okay, if we wanna prevent eating disorders, let's talk about dieting and how that is really leading to um, a lot of suffering. I love it. <laughs> Definitely love it, yes, for sure. And I think too, just as a physician, that's what I am trying to get out to my colleagues as well because we are so strong in our push to get people down to these certain size, certain weight. And I think that it's doing more harm than it is good. So even if people aren't going to full-blown eating disorder, diagnosable eating disorder, so many people are dieting and recurring, re recurrent dieting over and over again, that even that alone is stealing years away from many young people. So let's go forward and talk about diagnosis. So if a parent suspects that their child might have an eating disorder, or they start picking up on some of these signs and symptoms you talked about before, what should they do next? The first thing I recommend is go see your doctor because we always want a baseline health marker, um, right? How is their heart rate? How's their blood pressure? Um, how are their labs doing? Um, go see your doctor and work on getting a diagnosis. This can be tricky because many times, um, you know, first-line doctors are don't recognize what's going on, and they want to say, "Oh, it's fine," you know, a couple pounds lost here and there, or whatever, um, and they send you on your way. And your teen or kiddo gets the message, "Okay, nothing's wrong. I'm not really sick." But I still say, go to your PCP, and if you um, feel like your kiddo is struggling, trust your gut. I urge you to persist, to get a second opinion, stay on it honestly argue with the doctor, right? Like say, nope, these are the things I'm really seeing. Um, it's really important that we follow folks medically throughout the entire process. So that's first and foremost. The second thing I recommend is if you can, find an eating disorder specialist. Um, you know, find someone who knows what they're doing. I think that's been challenging, you know, where we live, right? There hasn't been too many folks um, who, especially therapists, and that's who I mean, who specialize in this area. And so um, you might look up some resources on like feast.org, that's for parents. Um, you might, I brought a book actually that I can recommend too. It's called When Your Teen Has an Eating Disorder by Dr. Lauren Mulheim. She sets out some great guidelines, um, but get some support. 
And then what we typically do with children and teens is kind of set up a residential treatment center at home if we can, if um, the teen is medically stable. Mm -hmm. And what that means is really refeeding your teen. Um, and that's really difficult to do, but that's typically the best outcome. We have a lot more research to back that up. But first and foremost, see your doctor and then get some support. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I have to admit that I, I feel like pediatricians do have some training <laughs> when it comes to eating disorders. I know I trained at a children's hospital and we had one side of one of the floors where it was set up to admit patients that needed to be admitted for eating disorders and these are the extreme cases that have to be inpatient and you do learn how to recognize but i think that there's so many that slip under that i tend to not see as many people come in for that concern so yeah i think i'm always going to recommend go see your doctor because that's really important also to rule out if there's any acute you know life-threatening medical issues happening at the time but I just love what Chelsea said about advocating for your child. And this is what I say to all my parents in general. If I have a parent that comes into me and their gut's just saying something's wrong, I'm going to trust that gut. I am going to trust that parent to know that, okay, there's something else I need to be thinking about here. Maybe I don't see something in the surface, but there's something else I need to be thinking about. So as a parent, you have to be bold sometimes. You have to have the courage to keep going whenever you you know that there's something going on to help your child. So like Chelsea said, get a second opinion or find somebody that specializes in eating disorders. And can you talk a little bit more about finding a therapist also, because there's even within the eating disorder world, <laughs> there can be a variety. So finding a therapist that's familiar with health at every size and some of that weight inclusivity, how could parents go about searching for someone like that? We have a um, database of health at every size therapists through the Association of Size, Diversity, and Health, which can be a really helpful resource. Um, you can also contact me, of course, and I can I have some connections in Washington State, but also throughout the country. Um, it is really important to find a health at every size therapist and a dietitian if you're going to be working with a dietitian, because one of the big fears that your kiddo may be struggling with is a fear of weight gain. And if there is any fear on your treatment team that your child could gain way too much weight or there's an investment in how your child looks at the end of the recovery process, that can be really damaging. Mm. So it's really important that you find a health at every size or someone that knows about it and is aligned with it. Um, a lot of times treatment providers will tell kids, don't worry, I won't let you gain too much weight. And that is um, that can be really damaging, right? Because teens and kids think, okay, I can trust that, but then they go past where they feel like they're quote comfortable, and um, or they may need to gain weight to a place where it's past the normal BMI, um, and kids get really wigged out about that. So those types of promises aren't really helpful. More so, what we tell kids is, I don't know where your weight's going to land when you're healthy but we're gonna get you to a healthy place and we're gonna help you accept whatever that looks like. Um, and I know you're anxious about it. 
And that's a much more helpful message. Wow. Um, I actually, tears came to my eyes because as somebody that struggled with eating in the past, I mean, I can feel that anxiety within me. Um, it's, it's like, wow. I mean, that's just so hard. And I think helping these kids, just like you said, get to a point where they can accept themselves wherever their body lands and find true well-being because well-being doesn't necessarily mean a quote normal BMI, you know? And we don't know what the body's going to do, especially after prolonged restriction. You know, we don't know what the body's going to do. So making promises like that, I can see how that can really just affect the mental health of a child when they're trying to get to recovery. All right. So I know that one of the things you wanted to talk about is what treatment looks like because it can be a long road with some bumps and twists and turns along the way. And you have a lot of experience in this. So can you tell us a little bit about what does it look like once a child goes into treatment? What are the parents going to have to be looking out for and getting prepared for? Treatment looks different for every kid and teenager. There are a lot of different routes to go down. So um, some parents choose to have their kids attend a higher level of care. And by that, we mean intensive outpatient. So um, going somewhere for three hours, like five days a week, we could mean partial hospitalization. So um, being somewhere like eight to five, Monday through Friday, residential, actually living there, um, or inpatient, right, when we're really taking care of some medical concerns. Other parents choose to really do this in-house, and there's a treatment modality right now that's gathering a lot of evidence, and that is family-based treatment. And essentially, like I mentioned earlier, it means setting up kind of a residential treatment facility in your house where you are the treatment providers. And that can be really great, um, especially because you know your child best, you know what they used to like, um, you know kind of what their quirks are, and no one has to leave school, no one has to do, um, you know, leave their sports, well, per se, they might have to leave their sports, right? Um, but they can stay in their community and do treatment here. And um, that can be really, really, really challenging because what you're doing is battling an eating disorder that wants to stay entrenched and stuck really, really bad. And the reason I wanted to talk about this is to kind of give parents some strength, right? This could be really, really difficult as you're battling an eating disorder with your child, but it's essential and it's important. And the thing we typically focus first on in treatment, regardless of the modality or regardless of what the therapist is trained in, is refeeding or doing nutritional rehabilitation is actually the better term for it now. Mm -hmm. So. It's very difficult for a child to understand or have logical thinking or um, yeah, think logically about the eating disorder without being nourished. Mm -hmm. And so we look at that first and foremost. Food is medicine. And that's difficult because parents really want, and honestly providers really want the teen or um, kiddo to be motivated and to be like, yeah, I really want recovery. But honestly, that's not going to happen until they're renourished. So that's what we're really focusing on first and foremost in recovery. Yeah. And I think it can be really difficult for some parents because they're like, just eat. I mean, just eat, you know, <laughs> like it's just so hard to wrap your mind around somebody who's having issues with this, struggling with it, having so much pain with it, but 
can't bring themselves to eat. So I think it just requires so much patience and so much compassion and empathy and knowing that sometimes you might take a step back before you take a couple of steps forward. So what about recovery? What, what is recovery? What does it look like? And how common is it to get recovery after an eating disorder? We in the community don't have a good definition of recovery yet. We haven't operationally defined that. So it really looks different for everybody and everybody gets to define what recovery is. But in my mind, I love to make my own definition of recovery, right? And um, float it out to clients and see if that's what they're wanting, right? But where food really becomes kind of second nature, it's not something that is thought about all the time, that you get to live in your body without surveilling your body all the time, um, that you get to enjoy all of the activities and um, other values in your life without food taking over or thinking about food taking over. Um, that's how I define recovery. And um, a lot of folks will say too, you know, recovery isn't possible, or they'll say, um, I might deal with this all my life. And that may be true. You know, the jury's kind of out on that. Um, some folks really do feel like they are totally recovered and feel really good about that. And some folks are like, nope, this is something I'm gonna struggle with the rest of my life. And either way, it's kind of about, okay, how do you define that and how do you work with it? I think in our culture, it's extremely hard to recover because every single message coming at you about recovery, which may mean weight gain, accepting your body, is actively um, dismissed by culture. Don't accept your body, right? Always try to lose weight. Uh, make sure you're guarding against weight gain. All of those messages um, confirm fear of gaining weight, confirm eating disorder fear. So recovery is really, really challenging, but it's doable and it's worth it. Honestly, I couldn't do this work if I didn't think recovery was possible for everybody. Uh, well, thank you so much for doing the work that you do. And yeah, whenever you started talking about how difficult it is to be in the environment that we live in, I almost feel like you almost have to become obsessive about the opposite. You almost have to become obsessive about accepting yourself as you are and recurrently putting those thoughts. You have to replace the thoughts of like, oh, well, I, I wanna lose weight, I should lose weight, this is too big, this is too flabby, whatever with, nope, it's good, nope, it's good, nope, it's good. You have to like currently just like feed that in there because you're just bombarded with messages, especially if you're on social media. Maybe we should talk a little bit about social media too, but let me see if there's anything else I wanted to say about that. I think, yeah, I like that definition. And you know, the definition also of just being to a point where you can live a life where you're, you're not being so affected emotionally and socially by all the decisions you have to make about food. Like you can just feel like you can live a normal day-to-day -day life like everybody else without having these obsessive intrusive thoughts about the size of your body and about the food you're going to eat and not eat and, and then all those kinds of things. But really quick, can you give a little bit about social media? And do you, whenever you work with clients, do you have any recommendations about social media and what we can do about that? Yeah, absolutely. And to go back to your last point, because this will tie in, I often say, and I'm not the person that came up with this, and I apologize because I'm stealing it and I don't remember who said it, but recovery is really radical. And mm -hmm. it takes radical mindset to continue to 
combat all of the messages. So even with social media, right, it might take a radical step to really curate your feed. And by curate, I mean pick who you want to follow and recognize who you're following that's actually contributing to you feeling not at home in your body. Mm. Um, a lot of my clients are following um, fitness models. They're following folks who um, are working out all the time. They're following folks who are just obsessed kind of in the food realm, right? Um, and for a while I say, okay, maybe you could go back to that, maybe. But for now, take it off and see how you feel. Or really check in with, after you've scrolled on social media for you know your half hour or whatever, how do you feel afterwards? Do you feel like, oh, you know, I feel great in my body, I'm gonna go out and do what I'm gonna do, or do you, are you thinking like, oh, you know, now I don't feel so good? So that's really, really important. And pay attention to what other people are saying on your social media feeds and see how that feels. So important because pretty much everybody's on social media. And going along with that, I would love to know if you have tips for parents and families to promote healthy body image in their children. What can we be doing actively? What we can include or not include in our day-to-day lives to help our children learn to accept their bodies as they are? I think I'll speak from personal experience too because in my family, like the lineage of looking in the mirror, particularly for the women in my family, looking in the mirror and poking and pinching and trying on a bunch of different outfits was so normal. And that really did a number on me and did another number on other women in my family, right? So to promote healthy body image, you know, not doing those types of things. If you're really struggling with your own body image, I would say get some help, right? But in front of your kids, if you can, and I know this is really challenging, don't say anything for a while Mm -hmm. um, until you can promote some body positivity and really learn about that. That's number one. And really cultivating a healthy relationship with food yourself. Um, A lot of times, again, in my family, right, the dichotomy between good and bad foods. Oh, I'm being so bad for eating this. Oh, I'm being so good for eating this, right? that's not super helpful, especially for kids growing up. They learn that there's a moral value on food. Um, So really kind of taking out the judgments, the morality around body size, around food can be really helpful. And um, even if you're at a place where you feel good in your body, don't make judgments about other people's bodies. That's so important. Kids pick up on that very quickly. Oh, that person doesn't look good, so I know that I'm not supposed to look like that. Really watching your language can be so, so helpful. And while I say this, right, again, we live in this culture, so I'm not expecting parents to be perfectly body positive or never say anything in front of their kids. That's impossible. And honestly, your kids are gonna pick up stuff at school. They're gonna learn stuff, unfortunately, in nutrition class. They're gonna learn stuff, unfortunately, in these wellness programs in schools. And the more that you as parents can one, kind of combat those and fight those a little bit and do some education at school and doing some education with your kiddos of like, you know, know, how does that make you feel when you hear that? What do you think about the foods that you eat after these programs? That could be helpful too. That's so great. And when I was doing research for my book, I was shocked to learn that by the age of five, most girls already knew what a diet was. I mean, that's crazy. 
And yeah, they're definitely going to learn it at school. They're definitely going to learn it with their friends. Unfortunately, there's bullying and teasing and things like that. But I think the point of role modeling and doing the best that we can to be at a point of acceptance, because I don't think most of us are going to get to the point where we're just like totally in love with our bodies. And I that's not what we're saying and i don't think that's necessarily what's needed in order to be helpful it's more about you know it is what it is we do our best to live our life and get our our well-being and the way that we can get our well-being um but i think especially because i've been in all these places that you were talking about i was the one that did all the fat talk and you know having three other boys in my house. I didn't have any other girls, but I can't even imagine if I had more girls my age to engage in fat talk with, you know? Um, But definitely fat talk, a lot of body checking, dieting all the time, and a lot of polarization of food. I did all of those things, and I can say that I saw visibly how it changed the atmosphere of my family and my children. And just going back, we're not saying that parents are causing eating disorders, but we can start to shift the culture, even within our own households, to try to bolster our children so that when they go out into the world and they're exposed to everybody that says you should be thinner, you will be more valued if you're thinner, they at least have an added layer of protection there for their body image. Chelsea, I have one last question for you. I would love you to tell us, what do you wish more parents knew? And this could be about anything. What do you wish more parents knew? I wish parents knew how much of an asset and how strong they are to their kiddos. I think there's a lot these days of parent shaming and so many um, groups that... um, ask so much of parents and judge parents and I wish parents knew how much they contribute and how much they already know. I wish parents would trust their intuition, you know, and trust their gut on things Um, and recognize that parenting is hard, hard work. And so if you're not catching everything, yeah, you know, that's okay. It's like you, you'll do your best next time. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're not seeing something yet, okay, you'll get it, you know. To expect yourself to be perfect or expect yourself to be a perfect parent is absolutely impossible. I think the best thing you can do for your kids is demonstrate that you're human, that you are going to mess up, that um, you also have lovely and wonderful strengths. I love you. (laughs) I love that. Oh, that's so great for sure. I mean, parenting is definitely the hardest thing I've ever done in my life and that's what I try to instill in my parents and my practice and whoever I talk to out there in the world is I know that you're doing the best you can. So just hang in there, tweak wherever you can, trial and error, keep moving forward. But also let's not shame each other. I think we do that sometimes out of insecurities, but there's going to be a lot of people out there that tell you you should be doing things differently or judging you for the way that you do things. Let's not do it to each other and let's be loving and compassionate and help each other out and just know that you're a fabulous parent and your kids love you so much and they trust you. So yeah, just keep being there for them. That is so beautiful, Chelsea. 
any other resources that you had or any other recommendations that you have for families? Because of course we just skimmed the surface, even though we just talked all about eating disorders this time, where else can parents get more information to help them on this journey? So I'll repeat the resources I said earlier, um, just a little bit slower. The first one is feast-ed.org. Um, and that's a huge database of resources for parents who are helping their children recover. And the book that I really like and recommend for parents is When Your Teen Has an Eating Disorder by Dr. Lauren Mulheim. Um, she's a psychologist in um, California. It's great and it's really um, well laid out, um, has a lot of great recommendations for you on the journey. Um, the other recommendation I have is um, the National Eating Disorder Association website, so nita.org, I believe. Um, and so that's a great one. It has a parent toolkit. It has all sorts of information about eating disorders. It has um, a database of providers. And like I said earlier, the Association of Size, Diversity, and Health, that has a whole listing of health at every size specific providers. You really want to do your research when you're finding providers. You really want to interview them um, and know that they've got you, yours and your kids back. Um, there's a list of questions on each of those websites of what you want to ask your provider as well. Make sure you ask those questions. Um, that can be really helpful too. Great, thank you. And we'll definitely list all of these out in the show notes. So provide links so that it's easy for you. And you know, we, we talked about a lot of generalities. Each eating disorder has its specific differences, but in general, just like Chelsea said, when you start seeing these signs and symptoms in your child and you start getting concerned, your little spidey sense goes up, your mommy spidey sense, then definitely it's something worth paying attention to, seeing your medical provider and uh, really being there for your child. So Chelsea, this has been really great. Thank you so much for being my resident. Uh, you're actually the only person that's been on my podcast twice so far. So yay, thank you. So yeah, you're basically my go-to for all of these types of questions. So I really appreciate you um, helping us learn about all of these things. And I hope that you have a very plantastic day. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for tuning in. And I look forward to having you back again next week. A very special thank you to the band Rocket Surgeons for permission to use the broccoli song. To find out more about the Rocket Surgeons, please visit their website at rocketsurgeonsband.com or Facebook at Rocket Surgeons Music. Please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Also, all of my social media links can be found in the podcast description. Send me a message and let me know what you think of today's podcast sharing is caring. Please share, rate, and review my podcast and drop me a line if you have ideas for future episodes. Thank you once again and have a plantastic day. We're having broccoli.